0: This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. A couple of announcements before we get to today's episode. The next version of the Big Change Program is going to be coming up probably in October. And if this is the first you're hearing about it or you don't really remember it from previous episodes of the podcast, you're probably not on the mailing list. So one of the things I'd recommend you do, make a note, go to plantyourself.com and get on the mailing list so you can find out about courses. A lot of them are free. I have a lot of uh, reports that I give away. If you're just listening to the podcast via some subscription uh, through a podcast player or iTunes or Overcast or something like that, you're missing a lot of the background stuff and a lot of the behavioral stuff. Big Change Program is a paid program, um, but it runs for a whole year. And the feedback we've gotten from the first group has been pretty stellar, um, so I'm excited to roll this out farther and wider. And me and um, my business partner Josh Lajani are both really excited to uh, to take this to the masses. So if you're if you're looking to make a big change in your life, keep an eye out on your inbox in your inbox for an email from us, uh, letting you know about the sign up for the next one. And if you're not getting emails from us, then go to plantyourself.com and get on that list. I'm um, also doing a shorter course, a smaller course. It's, it's only going to be for six weeks, um, but it's going to be very powerful. If you find yourself getting tripped up by situations, by temptations, it's a, it's a six week course on tripwires, on the things in our environment, both external and our mental environment. That, that trip us up that even though we have the best of intentions we sort of find ourselves like two hours later having binged having not gone on our run all the stuff that like, it's like our our rational goal-seeking mind just seems to go to sleep and some other part of ourselves takes over and then we wake up and we're like ah, oh, shit what did I do so those can feel very disempowering those moments but there is a science to how these tripwires are installed in us and there's a science to how we can disable, disarm, and disregard them. And uh, that's gonna be a very hands-on course. It's not gonna be a ton of data dump of content. It's gonna be very hands-on with you doing the work. So keep an eye out for that as well. Third thing, if you would like one-on-one coaching, uh, I'm taking on five new clients in the month of September. And you could be one of them. If you're interested in finding out more, we should have a quick conversation. You can email me, hj at And we can schedule that to see if coaching would be right for you. Okay, now to today's episode. My guest is science author Marta Zaraska, author of a phenomenally well-researched and well-written entertaining book called Meat Hooked. The history and science of our 2.5 million years obsession with meat. So Marta writes about science and health for some pretty influential and prestigious publications, including Scientific American, where she had a piece published earlier this month on the meat paradox. You can find it by searching online or going to the show notes for today's episode at plantyourself.com/172. It's behind a paywall. Uh, which used to bother me until I became a writer for money. And now I think paywalls are a perfectly reasonable way for people like me to get paid. She's also written for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and now, of course, she has been published on the Plant Yourself podcast, so I don't know what further heights she can attain. So here's what's interesting about Meat Hooked. As a science writer, Marta came across the same stuff, the same data that many of us see around how bad meat-eating is for us, for our health, for the planet, for ethics, for animals, just in in every dimension, our our meat-eating, human meat-eating is just disastrous. And so in the face of this evidence, like what most of us do is we write books about how bad it is. Marta didn't do that. Instead, she asked a really interesting, different question. Why are we so hooked on meat? If it's so bad for us, why are we eating it? It's a really interesting scientific question. After all, we don't necessarily go around hitting ourselves in the head with hammers. Most of the time, the things we do are things that are naturally good for us. So why are we so hooked on meat? And she looked at this question from a whole bunch of different dimensions, biological, psychological, sociological, evolutionary, biochemical, and each chapter explores a different facet of our species' obsession with meat. And the answers she provides, as I said, are really interesting. They make great cocktail party conversation, but they also are empowering because once we understand them, we can start to take steps, both individually and as concerned citizens of the planet to lessen the hold that meat has on us and to move toward a more plant-centric diet in the future. So without further ado, Marta Zaraska, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yes, so you wrote this fantastic book that is so informative and entertaining, which are two things that aren't always together. And the name of the book is Meat Hooked. And I'd love for you just to start by explaining the title. What did did you want to convey by Meat Hooked?
1: Uh, So basically, you know, it's quite a simple answer, actually, so that we are basically hooked on meat, and uh, I wanted something that was a little bit shorter than, you know, we are hooked on meat, and hence meat hooked, especially that the second part of the title is a little bit longer, it's uh, the history and science of our 2.5 million years obsession with meat, so uh, that makes it much longer.
0: Uh Uh-huh. What what is what I'm curious. What do you mean by hooked? Because it's 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 not quite the same as addicted.
1: Uh, I wanted to avoid the word addiction because it really implies you know some kind of uh, biological uh, basis, uh, something you know some kind of chemical compound that uh, uh, that makes you biologically addicted. The way you have nicotine and cigarettes, for example. And uh, so far as we know, uh, nothing like that has been found in meat so there is no particular compound uh, that would really make you addicted to meat Uh, there are of course many uh, many things that make it delicious and why it makes us appeal to us so much uh, you know mixtures uh, comparable to you know like we have for example sugar and fat in ice cream so there are similar things in meat that are unique to meat but they are not exactly addictive uh, in a way that nicotine is in cigarettes for example or in the way the heroin's
0: uh huh, and, and in the book you 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 kind of come at it from all these different angles—social and biochemical and historical. So it re- it really is this obsession with meat is really very multidimensional, isn't it?
1: Uh, it is. It certainly is, and there is a biological part of it. So I'm not saying there's nothing you know in meat that would make. As appeal to us so much biologically because there is, uh, and uh, and the main compounds uh, that uh, are unique to meat. I mean, they are not unique to meat, but the mixture is very particular to meat. Uh, there is fat. There is abundant protein, for example, and and those things. Appeal to us because for our ancestors they meant survival. You know, if you lived two and a half million years ago on African savannah, uh, you know, having something that had plenty of fat in it and plenty of protein was very important because people back then didn't have much choice. You know, they didn't have stores full of the lovely foods that we have nowadays. You know, if they found something very caloric and at the same time full of proteins, it was a great idea to eat it. Uh, You know, in the same way, if they came across, you know, a bucket of uh, Ben and Jerry ice cream. If they ate it, it would be also a great sweet, and so on. But for them the priority was survival and hence calories. So um, so there are, you know, by, and of course we evolved to look for those kind of things, like the mixture of sugar and fat like in, in, in cakes or, or ice cream and also the mixture of fat and protein uh, like found in meat. Um, so, so there are biological reasons. And of course there are also uh, some studies starting to show that um, there may be also some genetic differences between people and that some people may have some mutations that make them a little bit more prone to loving meat and uh, to choosing more meat in their diets. Uh
0: huh. So before we get into the the details of the book, I'm really curious how you got interested in this topic in the first place.
1: Uh, so there, there were. Many different reasons. So, first of all, uh, I'm a science journalist. So, I've been writing about science, nutrition, climate change for uh, quite a few years now, uh, and uh, I, I write for the Washington Post, the Scientific American, and some other publications. And and also before that, I I, I worked as a foreign affairs um, journalist, uh, specializing in Africa, and I often traveled uh, and reported on you know environmental problems, nutrition, and so lack of you know a lack of food as well and all these things came t- together to me you know connecting those things you know how many of the environmental problems around the world also stem from the fact that we, in general as humanity or we are eating too much meat uh we know for example you know that meat eating contributes as much to climate change as all the transportation combined so all the cars planes trains trucks everything together so it's huge so so uh so there was one angle and the second angle was that that about 10 years ago, I went um, kind of vegetarian because I still sometimes rarely eat fish, uh, but mostly vegetarian. And uh, I started reading all the books that were written uh, about um, vegetarian diets, I mean, Plenty of different great books out there, you know, talking about health issues and environmental issues, exactly. But I just couldn't find a book that would explain why do humans love meat so much, despite the fact that we know there are so many bad things, uh, you know, connected to eating too much meat. Uh, and yet, you know, we really really don't want to give it up. You know, there recently, just a few days ago, the Rubber Bank re- released new data showing that in 2015, Americans ate uh, much more. Meat Meat than ever before. It was the highest number in four decades. Uh, so, so, you know, so, uh, so why? Even though there were so many reports at the same time about you know connecting meat eating to cancer and so on, and yet we are eating more and more of it.
0: Mm. And and you're not just attributing that to to marketing, although that's a that's a piece of it, right? Because I, you know, when I talk with people, they're constantly confused because you know somebody wrote me yesterday how come there was a study out of the University of Houston saying that the paleo diet was good
1: yeah, of course, there are studies like this, and it's—I it's, find it very disturbing—and—and uh, and, uh, that uh, you know, scientific journals uh, still publish studies that are uh, very often sponsored by the industry that has very much interest in specific results. For example, you know, just only a few years ago, um, one of the top scientific journals, BMJ, uh, said they will no longer publish studies sponsored by the tobacco industry, uh, but they still—and many other journals publish studies for example sponsored by pharma industry that show uh, you know uh, that show beneficial results to their products and the same with meat industry you know they, they invest a lot and sponsor many studies uh, with the hopes of showing that uh, meat eating and lots of protein is good for you and uh, other studies show that you know that such sponsorship uh, actually does change results so for example in pharma uh, the, the chances that the study sponsored by the industry will be good for that industry are four times higher than if the study is not sponsored. So, so you know, so there is a lot of impact. And if you see studies uh, in scientific journals that show that paleo diet is good, that lots of animal protein is good, and so on, there is a huge chance that the study has been sponsored by the industry. I actually do not recall seeing a study saying that lots of animal protein is good for you that has not been sponsored by the uh, by the meat industry. Uh, but the problem is that when it's reported in the press, you know, usually, usually those things are not mentioned. You know, usually it's not mentioned, by the way, the study has been sponsored by the meat industry. It just says, you know, eat more protein, is good for you. Uh, so I think it's a huge responsibility for journalists as well uh, to mention those things. You know, it's important for readers to know, hey, by the way, that study has been sponsored by the by beef producers, for example, or, or chicken council. So so they, they should know. So,
0: uh, yeah, you know, you're, you're a journalist. I, I don't, Often talk to journalists. I usually talk, you know, to scientists or practitioners. But I'm amazed as I do my research, and I start, and you know, something will come across my Facebook feed, and I'll go to some some article, and then it'll it'll it, you know go through some major publication, whether it's a major network. New, you know or the New York Times or Wall street journal and I am amazed at the poor quality of science journalism and i you know i don't and I don't want you to you know slander your colleagues, but can you kind of shed some light like is it is it laziness is it they haven't been educated is it they're afraid of of um advertisers pulling out and and yeah. do you you know do you agree first of all that uh, with my premise that that this I the mean, state of science journalism, especially around food and nutrition is appalling
1: i mean you know there are some amazing science uh, science journalists out there and there are some very not amazing ones as well so i agree that there is some poor journalism but there is also you know there are also great journalists out there uh but it's definitely hard for a reader to tell you know whose article they are reading right so uh so that's definitely worrisome and uh definitely also The case of you know advertisers pulling out is a problem, and another problem which I see even as maybe even more of an issue is that uh, in nutrition studies, you know, they're in a way they are very boring uh, because most scientists generally agree on the same things. So there is nothing ground shattering really being discovered. So in general, you know, hmm. eat more veggies, it's good for you. Eat less meat, it's good for you. You know, don't eat so much fat and so on and so on. The, the generally vast majority of si- nutrition scientists agree on the same thing, especially if they don't take any money from the industry. So, uh, so, you know, less sugar and so on and so on. But, you know, reporting that is boring. So, you know, if... If, for example, I'm a freelancer, if I wanted to sell an article today saying, you know, eat more veggies and less meat, uh, it's good for you. No one is going to buy it from It's boring. People have read it over and over and over again. They want something new. And, a, and, a, and an article saying, you know, eat more meat is good for you is much more likely to sell uh, because it's shocking, because it's different, and also because it doesn't agree with the vast majority of, of science. So, so unfortunately, that's, you know, the kind of the pressure of media makes it more likely that something that's controversial because precisely it's against the, the, you know, mainstream science will be printed.
0: Hmm. That's funny because there's, you know, so the mainstream science is so overwhelming that it's boring. And yet we, we act, we live as if the other side were true. The, the, right. When, when, and I guess that, that brings us directly to the, to these meat hooks, because if some, you know, some, someone grows up, they've read a thousand studies and a thousand articles that, you know, eat your veggies, Cut down on meat, and then they'll see one article about bacon, and and that's what will convince them. So they've already been meat hooked, right? So.
1: And also we want to hear that, you know, I would love, you know, for scientists to suddenly discover that eating more sugar is great for us. You know, I would <laughs> love that. You know, eat only sweets, you will be more healthy. Perfect, you know. So, you know, so we, we crave those things. And the same with meat, you know, because we have evolved to, to to love the flavors found in meat. We crave them. And we would love nothing more than to see that even in modern they, if you want to live longer, you should eat more meat. You know, everybody would love to read, read it, you know, and also that animals don't suffer. And by, by the way, it doesn't impact environment at all. You know, this is what we would really like to read all of us. So unfortunately, that's not exactly true from the scientific perspective. Right.
0: So let's let's get into some of the the actual meat hooks. So which um, and you, you talk a lot about uh, at the beginning about the evolution of meat eating. Like just, just, mm-hmm. which is, I thought, you know, beautiful. I'd never thought about that. Like, how did that come about in the first place? And I love that you, you conjecture that it began by cheating cells. Can, <laughs> can you explain that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I, I do trace me to the very beginning of life. And so in a way, you know, the life on earth is, all about eating meat Uh, and uh, the very first cells uh, that became eukaryotic cells there is one theory that they changed so because they started the bacteria the ancient bacteria started eating one another Uh, and uh, to be able to do so one of the some of them uh, had to start cheating in their communities by it's a little bit complicated but basically uh, to be able to eat one another they had to lose their outer cell and uh, it involved a lot of cheating others and so on and being sneaky but they started to eat each other and that led to the whole development of eukaryotic lives with multiple organs inside and organelles so so and later on you know the whole uh and uh, and uh, the carnivores, the hunters and predators, uh, led to the uh, to the biodiversity and to you know to the growth of life as we know it. Because you know if you don't want to be eaten, uh, you have to think of all the ways uh, to be faster, to be bigger, and so on. And then the predators have to grow bigger and faster, and so on. So 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 the life became you know the whole force of life was also around eating meat. So there is something extremely powerful about it, uh, and. Of of course, that has nothing to do with uh, whether we humans should be eating a lot of meat in the 21st century, United States or, or Europe. Uh, but it is uh, the fact of life that uh, meat eating or predation uh, was extremely important uh, in, in the whole evolution of life on Earth.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, for, for those of us today who are, you know, in the plant-based or vegan movement, there's kind of a moral... Uh, distaste for animal you know for us eating animals or even animals eating one another and you, you know the way the way you portray the evolution it's this this kind of pressure really was the was the engine of everything mm-hmm. we, we have now so it's not it's not like something that we can just we can just walk away from and say it has nothing to do with us
1: no, of course, and pretending otherwise, I think, is just you know silly and makes it more difficult to understand uh, uh, the whole ideas and uh, concepts of meat-eating and its role in our modern society as well. You know, pretending that animals, some animals, don't have to eat each other is also completely against uh, you know what we know about biology. For example, cats cannot be vegan; uh, they must—they're obligate carnivores. Uh, so it means they must eat meat because their bodies are. Incapable of producing some of the compounds uh, without eating meat uh, in a way that our bodies are capable. Of, for example, vitamin A. Uh, so, or or dogs can also produce some of the compounds, but cats cannot, and they die if they don't eat meat or get very sick and die. So, uh, so in nature, yes, some animals uh, just have to eat meat.
0: Right. So, you you talk about the um, a meat eating gene. The, uh, was it a- APO E4? APO E4? Yes. Can, can yes. You, can, I was a little fuzzy as I read that. Can you kind of ex- explain it in layman's terms?
1: Yes. Uh, so, so basically, it's called uh, science, some scientists call it the meat-eating genes. And basically, uh, when our ancestors started eating uh, meat, uh, you know, the meat back then uh, was uh, was not the meat we have nowadays. Basically, it was very often rotten, you know, brimming with bacteria and parasites. And so, as not to get so sort of sick from eating it, uh, they evolved uh, genes uh, that. Help them uh, deal with those uh, those parasites, but unfortunately, the side effect of having that gene that allows for uh, not getting so sick from uh, from spoiled meat uh, was uh, raised cholesterol and cardiovascular problems. So, uh, so you know, so there was kind of a trade off. Later on, we evolved another set of uh, meat eating genes that also. Uh, took a little bit of the edge from the cholesterol problem so made it uh, so so those people didn't have so much of cardiovascular problems and there in nowadays some of us uh, have that, first version of the gene, uh, and some of us have the newer version, and those of the older version are more prone to the cardiovascular problems. They would be probably better off if they ate a piece of spoiled meat, but uh, they are much more likely to have high cholesterol and uh, heart problems um, from eating a lot of um, animal fats.
0: I I think we we see this a lot in in biology, that that there is the thing that gives you protection over a short-term acute problem the trade off is if you do it chronically it it, it will it's, it's it's not like a win win right it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a it is a trade off a win lose you know i think i we saw that with uh, when i was working uh, on whole with t Colin campbell on his work with this um, you know the, the meat animal protein and liver mm-hmm. cancer yeah. where where this this multifunction uh, oxidase would protect people against acute poisoning, but in the long term, you know, lead to these chronic conditions.
1: Exactly. And, you know, this is also one thing that people very often misunderstand uh, when they hear that we have evolved to eat meat. And here is the fact, you know, for our ancestors, those two and a half million years ago and million years ago, meat eating was a very good idea. And many scientists even say that it has actually made us human because uh, such a good quality food as meat was back then for them, Allowed us to grow bigger brains. So back then it was a very good food. So what they don't understand is that that does not mean that nowadays is a good food. And let me explain. So you know, for our ancestors, the priority was survival from one day to the next. Uh, they didn't have enough food. They didn't have much choice of foods. Other foods they ate, for example, before they started eating meat, were leaves, grass, even tree bark for some species of hominins. So, so you know, they didn't have abundant foods. And they just wanted to survive to the next day and not be hungry. Uh, also, you know, evolution uh, only cares about you passing on your genes to the next generation. So you only have to live long enough to have kids, and that's it. And uh, our ancestors often, you know, the average lifespan was 35 years old, um, which basically means I would be dead by now, most likely. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, and just to pass on your genes. So live long enough to have kids. Nowadays, we want something very much different from life, we don't only want to live long enough to have, you know, ten kids and then die <laughs> at the age of thirty-five. So, uh, so the problems, meat can help you with that. Meat can help you survive until the thirty-five and have plenty of kids uh, if you are in a, you know, very sparse environment. But. If you want to live long and healthy in modern world, that's not the same because when you get older, meat causes the troubles, the problems, health problems uh, that our ancestors didn't live long to ex- long enough to experience, such as you know heart disease, cancer, and so on. We just never really made it to the to the age of 60 to start having cancer problems from eat, meat eating. Uh, so this is why you know, and of course we have so much choice of better foods nowadays. If our ancestors had peanut butter, maybe nowadays scientists would be saying that peanut butter made us human. Not meat, meat made as human. <laughs> uh, but of course, obviously, you know, that was not the case. So something that was good. It's no longer is. Just like, you know, if they had plenty of, uh, of uh, Oreo cookies back then, it would have been a perfect food for them, you know, highly caloric. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's they didn't, and, and, you know, and that does not mean that, you know, that Oreo cookies are the best food for you nowadays either. So, so this, these are the, exactly the trade-offs. So, you know, live long, healthily, or procreate as much as you can fast and die.
0: Well, I, th- I think I'm going to write a cookbook on the, the paleo Oreo diet.
1: <laughs> yeah exactly
0: it even rhymes nicely <laughs> okay. so you mentioned that this um, the, you know the gene mutation that allowed that allowed our ancestors to survive bacteria and and, and rot and parasites um, you know also also led to cardiovascular disease and cholesterol problems later there, but there are um, there are lots of other um, biological, Mutations or evolutions that we did, like to make us like meat that probably wasn't poisonous Mm -hmm. for us. Right? You talk about like this Maillard reaction.
1: Yes. Yes. Definitely. So you know the things that uh, we crave in the flavor of meat. So I basically managed to trace it to a few compounds, basic compounds. You know, uh, so one is fat, and of course that means calories. So we always we evolved to crave fat. Second is protein. Uh, that was abundant in meat, which uh, which was also something that was important for our ancestors. Uh, not necessarily. So nowadays, when we eat too much protein, and the third thing uh, is the Maillard reaction, and this is the smell that delicious smell when you can uh, sniff when for example you know a burger is grilling or you're frying uh, bacon for breakfast so this is the scent of browning of meat and uh, we most likely evolved to look for those uh, smells because uh, cooked meat meant it was uh, less uh, less poisonous you know it had less bacteria less parasites so it was better for us so we uh, evolved to look for this particular smells of browning of cooking because it signified uh, safety
0: yeah so so the, you know the folks who enjoyed that smell more died less frequently of food poisoning <laughs>
1: probably right yeah.
0: and, so, and so and so now we we we, go, we walk past the diner and we smell the bacon and we think this is the best thing in the world because two million years ago, yes. it, it, <laughs> it, it kept us from dying when that was the only thing we could possibly eat.
1: Yeah, it basically meant to our ancestors that that food had less parasites. It had nothing to do, you know, whether it has less parasites or it's healthy. Uh, Nowadays, I mean, it has less parasites than raw, than raw meat, but, you know, you wouldn't be eating raw meat anyway, most likely.
0: Right. So now you you mentioned that you know we crave protein because it was important for our ancestors. I've I've heard people talk about the fact that that's that we, we actually crave carbohydrates, right? We have um, carbohydrate sweet receptors on our tongues. We don't really have protein receptors. What what did you find when you looked into that?
1: no so we do carry protein as well so uh, so and so we can tell the umami taste and we do have umami receptors and umami uh, on our tongues and uh, umami uh, is most likely uh, the taste that signifies that there is Abundant protein in the food, mm-hmm. and we have the receptor, and we do have receptors for that. Uh, and uh, and when it comes to protein cravings, uh, we also know uh, from research uh, that uh, humans, just like many other animals, you know, from cockroaches to mice, uh, have protein cravings. Ma- basically, it means that if the percentage of protein in our diet falls below a certain um, amount, and thats uh, for us is about fifteen fa- percent, uh, we start. Actually, biologically craving it. So, for example, in studies, if you put a group of people uh, and uh, on a diet that's uh, very poor in protein and then let them into a buffet restaurant, they will start choosing foods for themselves that's more abundant in protein uh, than the same people would have if they were not uh, starved of protein for a few days before. So, so we know that we have those cravings, and the same thing happens with rats, for example. If you if you starve them of protein, they will go crazy for protein right afterwards when when you allow them Uh, but that has nothing to do again with our modern lives because that may be true of people for example and it is true of people uh, who uh, often suffer hunger in um, you know for example in some parts of africa when the diets are uh, very poor in protein because they are generally poor uh, you know uh, in nutrition Uh, but in the western world in on average we are eating two times uh, as much proteins as we need so uh there is an extremely low chance that any of uh, the re- the listeners are suffering of protein cravings because they don't have enough protein in their diet
0: mm. but now if you're, if you're eating an entirely plant-based diet and you and you're not including you know veggie do- dogs and veggie burgers mm-hmm. and and you know tempeh and tofu and processed foods you may not get more than 10% 10 or 12% of your calories from protein so are you saying no. that 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 all of us who are doing like an 80-10-10 are kind of walking around like fighting protein cravings?
1: No, that's not true at all. Because basically in the in Western world, it's almost impossible for yourself to have not enough protein. Uh, only really people who, ha- who are, for example, anorexic or uh, AIDS sufferers or people who are actually starving uh, do not have enough protein. Uh, there are very very limited numbers of diets that do not have enough protein and the, the reason for that is basically everything has protein in it and plenty of plant foods have abundant proteins again that peanut butter that i mentioned earlier on is a perfect complete protein as complete as meat the same with potatoes for example potatoes have as, as complete protein as meat and so on and so on so uh so when I mentioned Africa, uh, there are some places where people uh, base their diets uh, on things, mostly on things like platane, for example. And platane is famed for very low protein content. It's one of the very few foods plant foods that have extremely low protein content. And uh, these people can risk this kind of protein malnutrition. But in general, in the Western world, it's, it's impossible. You would have to really work hard, eat only marshmallows and sugar by the spoonful to have uh, protein <laughs> deficiencies.
0: Uh-huh. Because one of the groups that we studied um, for uh, Proteinaholic, which uh, you know, Garth mm-hmm. Davis's book that I, that I contributed to, we looked at fruitarian athletes, sort of these ultra-endurance yeah. athletes who basically live on fruit, and I, you know, I looked up the protein um, content of, you know, apples mm-hmm. and mangoes yeah. and peaches, and they were. It seemed like they weren't. They weren't getting enough protein,
1: but mm-hmm. clearly, yeah.
0: clearly, they are. So, we, you know, yeah. e- even those like labile amino acid, um, you know, f- f- reserves, our body seems to be able to to handle that.
1: I mean, with extreme diets, like, you know, exactly only fruitarian raw diet, and, and uh, maybe there might be a possibility of you not getting enough protein. For example, if you ate only strawberries, exactly, and, uh, and kiwi, that's, uh, that's possible, I can imagine that. But, you know, in a normal world, uh, even people who are vegan and eat reasonably uh, a reasonable diet, so not only, let's say, one type of fruit or, you know, one type of vegetable, but just Regular diets, they are perfectly fine, and this is why you do not see people uh, in downtown Manhattan walking with uh, kwashiorkor. This is the disease, you know, that was very famous uh, in 50s, uh, 1950s, uh, that causes children to have the swollen bellies, and this is basically a protein-calorie uh, malnutrition when you don't have enough protein in a diet. But basically, it it just basically means that people are starving. So, uh, so I can I could imagine it in only very extreme cases of very
0: unusual nutrition. Right. Um, you write a lot about hunting and you know the 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 paleo story is you know yeah meat meat made us human and we are natural hunters and so you know a mm-hmm. lot of paleo people are against factory farming which I think is great they're against you know easy easy meat but they feel like the the fact that you know that that humans um, have hunted, and that um, you know, tr- tribal people today still hunt is is kind of proof that we need meat in our diets. And you you have, you have a in the book you have a very sort of nuanced take on hunting and the role of hunting and what it, what it says about you know our relationship with meat. Could you explain that a little bit?
1: So I think you know it is true that hunting was a part, very important part of our culture. But once again, it has nothing to do whether it's a good thing. nowadays, it's uh, especially in the West. Once again, people who live, you know, tribe, tribe tribes of hunter-gatherers somewhere in Africa they may need to hunt because they basically have no other ways of uh, of uh, uh, get, getting enough food. So that's perfectly fine. But that does not mean that uh, a Westerner should be hunting for meat because that's what they should be doing. Uh, they shouldn't. And the reason for that is that our ancestors didn't have problems like, you know, overpopulation uh, lack of lands and uh, climate change. And that's what we do have to deal with. And there basically is not enough meat for everybody to satisfy their appetites. We have not enough planet, Uh, and uh, and to be responsible for the next generations, you know, we should be trying to reduce as much as possible our meat consumption. And uh, it's not possible to have happy meat for everyone, Uh, so which basically means, uh, you know, the actually factory farming, which is absolutely horrible, and I'm against it. But this is the only way we're getting so much meat that everybody wants. If we suddenly wanted all that meat from happy sources and hunting ourselves, it's just not going to happen. We would need probably seven. Planets
0: to, to do that. So I've I've heard people say though that uh, you know from the uh, the other side that we don't have enough l- l- you know arable land to grow all the <laughs> produce all the all the uh, the vegetables that humans uh, need.
1: <laughs> that's actually quite uh, it's absolutely of course it's it's completely not true uh the reason for that is that the vast amount uh the vast percentage of arable land nowadays is uh used to feed livestock uh and um as far as i remember right now it's 30 percent of all arable ra- land is used for feeding livestock for uh, for meat and dairy uh so uh and because you know animals, they also eat plants and uh, and they are they are wasting in a way, you could see uh, say the calories and protein on living so for each one uh, kilogram of grain that you um, uh, sorry, each one kilogram of meat that you get uh, from a cow you have to feed that cow 13 kilograms of grain or 13 pounds to 1 pound so it's 13 times uh, and there will have been plenty of studies done all showing the same thing basically if we switch to vegetarian diet will large swaths of arable the land will be freed and actually returns to wilderness and nature. So there is, there is absolutely no doubt about it. And uh, we have, uh, you know, if we switch to vegetarian diet, we'll have lots and lots more of land available. Uh,
0: so it seems like that's another one of those ar- arguments of the uh, irrelevant extreme. Like, I, you know, a lot of people come up to me and they say, What about the Inuit? What about the Maasai? Yeah. And so you know you're talking about. Let yeah,
1: them eat meat. You know they have you know they have no access to other things, and you know that then then they should be eating what they can. You know if people are hungry somewhere in Africa, they should be eating meat. You know if I if I see Maasai exactly and uh, they do not have access to to the abundance that we have and they are hungry then eating meat and grazing their cows on the land that's very you know non-arable anyway is a, is, 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 is absolutely fine uh, what's not fine is Americans we you know our abandoned supermarkets going and you know stuffing ourselves with these huge amounts of meat that's not fine
0: right but you know the argument is that that because these swaths of land in in uh, Tanzania and Kenya are not able to grow crops for humans that in general that it's better to use our land for growing you know for animal feed than for human feed.
1: I mean, if they're good for animal feed as for growing, and uh, then they're also good for human feed. But there are also swaths of land that are non-arable, meaning that you cannot grow any feed on them, whether for animals or for humans, and it's basically grasslands and very, very poor quality. There are some places like that, but this is so little that basically the only people we can that way are those Maasai in Tanzania and not Americans, you know, in New York or California. So uh, so it is fine to graze animals there and it's, in my opinion, it's fine for those, human, those people to eat them because they, they have a need, they're hungry. But uh, this is not, we cannot in any way think of uh, feeding uh, the world or Western population that way.
0: Right. Um, and, and the other thing you, you mentioned about hunting is that the myth is that You know, hungry human beings uh, would engage in these hunts, so like the the you know the San of um, of southern Africa, or um, Aboriginal tribes in in Australia, that 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 when when things looked bad, you know that they really needed the meat. And you're kind of arguing that the hunts were were more like like spectacle and sport, and they only occurred when there was already enough food from plant sources.
1: Yes, because there is also a difference. You know, there are very many different scenarios, but uh, I mean, situations and so on. And of course, there is also a difference between meat in general and hunting for big game. Uh, Because, you know, you can eat meat of very small birds or, you know, or for example, uh, rabbits and things like that. But when we talk about hunting uh, as something that uh, we admire and, uh, you know, that men boast about, it's not about hunting rabbits usually or hunting (laughs) small birds or frogs or hedgehogs and things like that but it's about hunting big game and uh, studies show in general that hunting big game is counterproductive so you know going for the elephant and so on or or the giraffe uh, or hippo this is not uh, the best way of providing for your family they have basically done plenty of studies calculating how much calories uh, men uh, in those tribes uh, spend uh, hunting those uh, those big animals versus how much uh, how much food they bring back, and uh, in some uh, some uh, cases, uh, for example, in Papua New Guinea, in some tribes, men would be better off sleeping in in, in the hammocks in their, in their, in their uh, campsites instead of hunting because they are basically wasting calories. <laughs> uh, but once again, uh, this is uh, about hunting big game, so maybe you know doing things like exactly gathering frogs and hedgehogs would be fine.
0: Uh huh. So it's 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 almost like the act of hunting is like when I go for a run. I like I run six miles in the morning, and I come back and I'm tired, and I haven't um, caught anything for my family. Like I haven't done anything productive, but in in a way, it's you know it serves other purposes.
1: Yes, it, it's in it for you know for our ancestors and still so for many of those tribes people. Uh, it serves a purpose. It's it's about showing off and politics and because meat meat for a very long time. This is we are going into cultural symbolism of meat here uh, has symbolized symbolized power, wealth and masculinity. And it all started when we started hunting and eat or maybe first scavenging and then hunting for meat. Uh, and uh, and because meat is a very special food, you know, other than those you know. Those frogs and so on. When you do stumble upon that zebra, or you know, or that uh, the antelope, that's a lot of food and a fu- food that spoils very fast as well. So it's a very something very nutritious, full of calories, uh, but it spoils fast if you don't have a fridge or a freezer. And like our ancestors did, and they didn't even know how to salt and preserve things. So uh, so it was a perfect food for sharing. Uh, you brought it to the camp. There was too much ju- just for yourself. So it was for sharing, and to decide who is getting a piece and who is not is politics. And uh, the same thing happens with our cousins, uh, chimpanzees. They also use meat for politics. So even alpha male has a has a, uh, a monkey that he has hunted. He will decide with whom to share uh, pieces of it, based on uh, who will be the best uh, for him to uh, you know to get on his side. So they, they use it for politics, and our ancestors did the same thing. So the hunting was about politics about showing up you know that you are strong you're powerful you have you know coalition behind you and so on i didn't have much to do about uh, you know providing the best nutrition uh for your family
0: uh, and you know since it's wrapped up in masculinity their hun- hunting and sharing of meat was differentiated on uh, gender lines too right
1: Obviously, you know, men are bigger than women on average, and uh, and stronger. There is no way around it, and uh, so they were usually the ones who were hunting, and usually the ones uh, who were deciding who is getting a piece or not. And this is also why, uh, you know, most uh, taboos uh, against meat eating are directed to women uh, to prevent them from uh, from getting a piece of the spoils. So, uh, so very early on, meat eating and hunting got connected to masculinity, and you know, it lives until today. Day, even though it's not there is very little you know strength uh required in going to a supermarket to buy a piece of meat but it <laughs> lives on especially that it's you know uh that it's also the, the meat industry uh, you know makes sure that this um, myth lives on for advertising and so on
0: Uh uh-huh. I, I had never seen the uh the hummer ad that you write about in the book but i was i was i was shocked by it can you describe the that that particular yeah. ad
1: there are plenty of those ads, and they are all in on YouTube, including that one. If you give your Google "Hummer," uh, I think G three or something like that, ad vegetarian or something like that, uh, carrot eating, you'll find it. And uh, basically, it's an ad uh, released a few years ago uh, for a Hummer, uh, in which uh, a guy there there is a guy in a supermarket buying vegetarian foods, and uh, he stay stands in line behind a guy who has a full basket of meats and. He you know the, the, the meat guy unloads all this ribs and bloody steaks onto the onto the you know cashier and uh, and the, the the vegetarian guy with all his carrots and stuff and tofu. Um, uh, you know he, he looks obviously you know like intimidated and and like he's getting you know he's growing smaller by the minute because the other guy you know he's all the meat. Uh, and then the vegetarian guy spots an advertisement for a hammer and he just you know takes all these carrots and tofu and rushes to a hammer. Dealer to get himself this big car and feel masculine again, and uh, and the tagline says, you know, uh, restore the balance. So basically, you know, if you are, you know, if you're a vegetarian to feel masculine again, you, you need a big car. So because obviously, you know, carrots are are not for real guys.
0: <laughs> so you write a chapter about why vegetarianism has failed in the past, and you know, you you we started this interview by you telling me about a study that showed that Americans are eating more meat than ever before, you know, so what, what does it take to, to start to, to break down these myths? You know, we're starting to see sort of more and more, um, plant-based athletes, you know, uh, very, in, in very masculine roles, football players, MMA fighters, um, uh, you know, weightlifters, um, but you know, what, what, what is it going to take to kind of start to break these, these cultural associations between meat and power, status, masculinity?
1: So certainly, you know, I think that exactly the example that you gave, you know, of um, of uh, sports uh, people, athletes, uh, especially men uh, in strength sports, uh, are a great example, and they are doing plenty of good to to change those uh, stereotypes. Uh, when you know the mistakes uh, that have been done in the past, because you know the vegetarianism is nothing new. You know, even Pythagoras was already a vegetarian. There was you know over the uh, human history there were uh, plenty of uh, Attempts at vegetarian uh, movements, and including a quite a big one in nineteenth century US and UK. Um, people back then who were big leaders of vegetarianism were, for example, Harvey Kellogg, the one of Corn Flakes, uh, and uh, Sylvester Graham's of Graham Biscuits and bread. And um, and the problem was that they were extremely radical. Uh, so uh, they they. They tied together vegetarian diets, so not eating meat, with plenty of other of other ideology uh, like puritanism uh, and uh, uh, asceticism. Uh, you know, they said no to alcohol, no to tobacco, no to sex, uh, no to any bodily pleasures. Basically, you know, they some of them used to wake up at like four a.m. in the morning to take cold showers, sleep on on the ground on newspapers, you know, things like that. So, uh, so it was the whole package made it very unappealing in general to most people. Uh, so And uh, and hence, you know, this vegetarianism got tied in with, you know, all these other things that people didn't want to do, like sleeping on the floor in newspapers or taking a cold shower at 4 a.m. Uh, and uh, that's also a mistake that I think is often made nowadays, that, you know, the vegetarian movements um, can be very... Um, Strict, so you know it's all or nothing. So you have to go vegan, never wear you know leather shoes or or nothing, uh, and so um, and that's why you often even see you know vegans criticizing vegetarians and being very antagonistic against them. And I think this is this is counterproductive because we want to encourage people, we want to reward them even for small changes instead of saying you know you either stop doing everything or it doesn't count and you're a horrible person anyway. Uh, it's you know it's better to reward someone for just doing meatless Mondays and trying, and say you know good for you instead of saying oh but why do you do that and why do that? why do another thing? So so I think this kind of radicalism generally proves uh, that it doesn't work, and that we should be more uh, positive. and And I see that plenty of um, non-profit organizations nowadays see that, and they are changing the way they talk to about uh, eating and exactly not to uh, not to appear radical and not to antagonize people and not to show that you have to. You know, like once you go vegetarian, you may never, ever, ever eat meat again in your whole life. Uh, so, because that scares people off.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, w- one of the the things that I see though is, um, you know, in in the vegetarian vegan movement, you know, in the in the '60s and '70s, the food was pretty bleak, yeah. <laughs> right? So, you know, you'd have your, you know, vegetarians ate lentil stew and and not much else. And you know, it was like rabbit food and, you know, the, the picture of the poor vegetarian eating the the slice of grapefruit with cottage cheese and and self-denial. And I've seen the thing it swing back the other way, maybe too far in terms of everyone mm-hmm. on Facebook is posting, you know, food porn. And yeah. you know, and you have some interviews with with the uh, with Kate and Rich of of Veg, which is mm-hmm. you know, this restaurant in Philadelphia that is as gourmet as anything you'd ever find, yeah. Um, you know, what are you seeing in terms of uh, you know the the plant based movement's relationship with food as pleasure?
1: You know, I generally I think it's a very good thing because uh, you know. Well, as you've mentioned before, you know vegetarian food was basically horrible, and if you go back to 19th century, uh, that was even worse. And people like Kellogg and and uh, and uh, Sylvester Graham, they basically uh, said that you should never use any spices, sold and that all everything should be overcooked into blandness and mushiness, which was horrible. Yeah. Uh, so, so it is a good thing that foods nowadays, vegetarian foods are so amazingly delicious, and there is so much availability. At least you know in US, maybe not where I uh in rural France. But uh, but in general that there is so much of it and it looks so good and tastes good because this is you know how how we convince people. Um but you are also right that you know going a little bit overboard and everything has to be key as with kale uh, then it can also Scare people uh, from it because it just appears too complicated. So I think the best way to start is some kind of middle ground of there. There is a lot of good food, delicious, but at the same time easy to prepare. And uh, you know, studies show that one of the main reasons why people fail at vegetarianism is because they don't know how to cook vegetarian food. So you know, simple, easy recipes, you know, cooking courses and things like that that encourage people to try that make it easy and appealing and fast. You know, for busy moms, uh, working moms. Like you know, I, I don't really have much time to be doing this fancy food they offer to your internet so so easy recipes and uh, something to start and you can go and try all the fancy ones as well but uh, basically again not to scare people away um, i think that's uh, one thing that's most important and you know exactly try things with meatless mondays you know which offers this kind of glimpse and try to learn how to cook vegetarian food and once you do you can try meatless tuesdays and so on as well so and also you know the foods like you've mentioned the vegetarian hamburgers or vegetarian hot dogs which are becoming better and better by the minute basically Um, you know these things are great because uh, we have something called eating scripts so uh, our brains operate in a way of habits when you for example when you have breakfast on Sunday you think bacon or during the baseball game you think hot dogs we have this kind of scripts in our brains and it makes it easier for our brains to operate it's less stressful Uh, so you know it's much easier for example to replace that uh hot dog during a ball game during a with a vegetarian hot dog instead of trying to eat a salad instead it would be very stressful to try eating salad and you would probably fail so it's much easier to just replace with something similar uh to try to stick to your habits and do it slowly
0: mm. yeah that's uh you know, for, for me when i work with people the the gracefulness of the transition is everything, because I think it's it's very mm-hmm. important to to say different things to different people at different times, right? Because when so, someone, I I love it when someone makes a transition from meat eating to a plant based diet, even if it means lots of you know, transitional foods and, and mm-hmm. junk foods, but exactly. but in terms of their health and even in terms of the, you know the planet, if someone's still eating twice as many calories as they need. And it's highly processed, and it's dependent on factories. You know, they, they haven't done very much for their health, and they probably haven't ver- done very much for the planet until until they move to something that's that's healthy, right? Yeah, and but
1: you know, at the same time, you know. Uh I see also sometimes in uh, some organizational campaigns promoting um, vegetarian diets that they push also for the, for the food to be extremely healthy, which, you know, in theory is very laudable. Of course, it would be perfect if we all, all ate vegetarian, super healthy, non unprocessed, homemade foods. But the reality is that people eat a lot of junk food, that they don't cook themselves, they eat sweets and so on. And, you know, and uh, so I think that, uh, you know, pretending that you have to go vegetarian it also has to be all this kind of uh homemade everything healthy is a little bit too much for people it's it may scare people off you know and so so it is fine you know of course it's the goal you know it's the goal to be super healthy all the veggies fruits and so on but uh you can also reward yourself when you go vegetarian with, with ice cream or with cookies or, or whatsoever, because it actually works, you know, just giving yourself this kind of rewards after having a vegetarian meal, it reinforces the, the connections in your brain between pleasure and, and the type of meal you've had, uh, instead of pretending that, you know, everything has to be 100% uh, healthy, so, because that's not how a majority of people eat.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, I th- I, th- I think it's a matter of what what people are ready for because a lot of the people I, I work with who come to who have found me have found me through one of the books and they're sort of already in the movement and you know there's a, there's a lot of stories about like once you go veg once you go vegan or once like you'll lose the weight you'll get off your meds yes. and it's not true mm-hmm. right Dep- yes. y- 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 it's not just that crossing that magic line.
1: It's basically what I'm saying is this is a process you know it is a bad idea to try to force yourself to go from you know a typical American meat-based diet with also lots of processed foods and, and fast food into this kind of you know uh, world of homemade uh, kale salads and vegan and also it's, it's probably too too much for most people there are people yeah. who are able to do that but for most people it's too much so it's much easier and with a much better chances of success to do this thing slowly you know with uh, with respecting the habits that you already have and just you know replacing things and and people usually do follow and do more once they start once you learn how to cook vegetarian and you know you, you, you te- people tend to go more and more so studies show that uh, when people go pescatarian, for example, they often follow vegetarianism, and vegetarianism followed by veganism. So it, it's quite rare that people go from exactly the typical American diet directly into super healthy veganism.
0: Uh huh. Ah, it's uh, they're uh, gateway drugs,
1: right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> you could call that.
0: Yeah, and and one thing I notice that really interests me is, and you you write about this in the book that when people eat meat, to avoid cognitive dissonance, they have to tell themselves that the animals are not suffering, Mm -hmm. right? And so, and I find that once people go vegetarian, even if it's a very very you know quote junky vegetarian, you know they're just eating the same foods, the same you know, but they're just meat substitutes. That all of a sudden they their natural compassion begins to bubble up even if they even if they hadn't t- been motivated by that even if they hadn't thought about it or intended it's like we you know in our bones we know that we shouldn't be torturing billions of animals
1: yeah, exactly. I, I, that, that's exactly what you're saying. You know, I had an article recently, uh, in the Scientific American, uh, exactly on the, uh, on the uh, psychological dimension of this something called meat paradox. So basically, most people love animals, and most people love eating animals. Eating meat. And this, co- this causes cognitive dissonance, a very unpleasant feeling that something is wrong. It's the same feeling that you can get if you're driving a, a hammer car or some very un- environmentally unfriendly um, car, and at the same time you worry about climate change. This causes cognitive dissonance. And people have plenty of mechanisms to solve that cognitive dissonance. Uh, one of them is, for example, a study show is uh, is pretending that uh, animals are uh, much dumber than they really are. For example, there are studies showing that if you just give people a piece of meat to eat, uh, right after eating that, they will suddenly start thinking that cows are much dumber and much less uh, uh, prone to feeling pain, that they had thoughts before eating that piece of meat. So it changes your outlook on life and uh, exactly to deal with those unpleasant feelings. Uh, and uh, another strategy is to pretend that you eat less. So people may say, oh, I'm vegetarian, when in reality they aren't. Uh, then this is also because they have those unpleasant feelings and they want to deal with them. And of course, the best way to solve the cognitive dissonance is to really go vegetarian. And that opens you know, uh, your mind because if you don't have anymore the cognitive dissonance. You don't feel that unpleasant feelings you can finally open your mind to thinking about all those things that were so difficult before. And, uh, and yes, and, uh, and it's, it's hard so often to come back.
0: Hmm. So be- before we close, there was one, one thing that I kept thinking while I was reading the book and, you know, you have chapter after chapter kind of explaining scientifically our, our, our love affair and our, our obsession with meat. And, and that was that there's a, there's a double-edged sword, that on the one hand, understanding these forces allows us, gives us power to, mm-hmm. to combat them, both as individuals and through policy. But at the same time, reading about these forces could also t- let somebody off the hook. Like, oh, well, that's why I could never give up meat, right? So how, how do you navigate between explanation and potential excuse?
1: Uh, It is always a danger, although I believe that, uh, you know, this uh, information, I hope, and in general studies confirm that, that, you know, that people... Do want to not eat animals? Most of them, because exactly it's unpleasant, and uh, uh, from a psychological perspective at least. And uh, and uh, uh, you know the, the numbers is the percentage of vegetarians in society, and especially vegans is so low, uh, and so many of them go back to eating meat that we cannot say that there is a risk of them, you know, of massive people going back to eating meat. And I do believe that if people understand the forces that keep them hooked, uh, you know, what makes it so difficult to let go of meat. Uh, uh, can make it easier for them to let go because you know once you understand the process, uh, you understand that there is nothing mysterious about it. There is no magic. There is no nothing special about meat that you must eat it. Uh, that it's all about this interplay of forces and that there are ways to 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 deal with them. To you know to to uh, to do something to help you win yourself of meat. Uh, I think that can be very empowering. You know in the same way that for example, if you were to uh, stop the obesity epidemic without understanding what causes it, will be very difficult. In the same way, we have to understand what causes this kind of meat obsession epidemic to to, to also stop it and to, to to change the way people behave. If we just say, just don't do it, it's not working, it hasn't worked so far. And so, uh, it's very hard for people to just, you know, tell most people uh, to say, just just uh, stop eating meat if they don't understand why are they craving it, why do they want to eat it, what's about this protein thing, you know, what's about this taste that they, they, they makes them salivate, you know, when they smell uh, grelin burger and so on and so on.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So uh, as, lo- as long as you're aware of the paradox, you can use that knowledge as power. You get to choose how you use it, right? Whether it's exactly. empowering or just letting you off the hook.
1: Exactly. You know. You, you know. You know exactly what's happening with your body and your mind, and that that can be very empowering.
0: Yeah. So um, I'm going to tell people why I think they should buy meat book and why they should read it and why they should give it to their friends. And, and I think it's, it's because it re, it really is, it's not a, a book in favor of anything, right? If you don't, you, it, it doesn't come across as having an agenda as, as trying to convince someone it's just, it's telling this story, this fascinating story. And I think when people finish reading it, they will, you give people the room to come to their own conclusions so I think it's a very, very powerful bit of, um, you know, pro-health, pro, pro pro-planet, um, I don't want to say propaganda, but, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very powerful tool to further this movement of getting people to be healthier and getting, you know, animals to suffer less and getting the planet to heal because it allows people to finish the book and then decide what they think instead of having to agree or disagree with you. Mm-hmm. so I, I encourage people to to get it i mean it's a great read um is is it an audio is it an audiobook as well
1: there there is an book as well yes it's available as well there's a kindle version hardcover version and uh, audiobook
0: okay how, how do you like the reader i have i haven't listened to it
1: i like her I, of course you know it feels a little bit funny to hear somebody else uh you know read your book but um, i i think it, i think it's very nicely done
0: OK, fantastic. And if people want to follow you, I just um, I was just multitasking and I found the uh, your article in Scientific American. And I guess it's um, it's behind a paywall. So it's so yes. seven bucks to, to read the article <laughs> or, or 20 for the entire digital subscription, which sounds like it might be worth it. Um, but how can people follow you and uh, and, mm-hmm. and stay in touch with, with what you're up to?
1: Uh, so if they can follow me on Twitter at mzaraska, so it's m z a r a s k a, or uh, check my website, so this uh, is dot uh, and uh, there they can find my email as, as well. If they want to, you know, write any questions, uh, I, I'll I'll reply
0: great and i'll and that will be i'll put those links in the show notes for for Perfect. today's episode so martha zaraska thank you so much for this amazing book for all your your research and writing and for taking the time today
1: thank you for having me all
0: right be well I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 171 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And as I mentioned at the beginning, if you don't yet get the newsletter with all that good stuff, then you can sign up for it right there at plantyourself.com. Thanks to the Plant Yourself podcast patrons Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Vilkanofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, and a new patron, Colleen Peck, for all of your generous support of the podcast if you'd like to support the show, you can share this in other episodes, on social media, and via email. You can write a review on iTunes. I haven't seen one in a while. It's been over a month since I've gotten a new review. And by the way, every single review is five-star. So those of you who don't love it that much are being a little bit lazy. Write a four-star. Write a three-star. Tell me what's wrong with it. Tell me how to improve. That would be cool, too. You can just go over to iTunes or open up your iTunes. I don't know how to do it. Just go figure it out and you know give me some stars give me an honest review it will help everybody you can also of course become a patron uh, and you can join that uh, that list that i read like an auctioneer by pledging a one-time amount or an ongoing gift to the podcast and you can do that over at plantyourself.com so if you want to get fit and healthy And even if you tried before and failed, hell, especially if you've tried before and failed, check out bigchangeprogram.com. The the button to sign up is not there yet. We haven't firmed up the dates for the fall running, Um, but read it, think about it, and I'll get back to you with more information and the details about when and how to sign up and how much it will be costing. In garden news, Man, I've been doing a lot of work in the garden. My wife is away this week taking care of a friend who who broke his leg. And so I've taken on all her chores, which did not seem all that onerous when I was watching her do it. But man, I'm getting up earlier. It's cutting into my day. So, you know, doing all the watering, doing a little bit of weeding, checking on things, kind of making sure everything's running smoothly. Man, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Well, luckily, uh, hopefully it's coming back uh, this weekend. Um, my wife and and all the the love and care she provides to the garden but wow it's a uh, it's a big job and uh, I wasn't fully aware I get to do this sort of heroic stuff of like putting in new beds and hauling things and the things where I get to point to it and say yeah, man made me did but the uh, the everyday maintenance of the garden is uh, is equally a commitment equally um, calling for for love and care and attention to detail. And so my, uh, my hope is for all of us to look around our lives and see where that support, where that nurturing is coming from that maybe we don't notice it all the time just because it is, you know, so dependable. That's it for this week. So as always, be well, my friends.